somebody makes a comment about, you know, Aboriginal people leaving the emergency department because they're just, they couldn't be bothered to wait. And you just kind of want to bang your head up against a wall and be like, did you ever think that the emergency department might be the problem and not the Aboriginal person? This is Listen, Learn, Respect, a podcast by the National Apology Foundation, coming to you from River City Studios in Mianjin, Brisbane, home of the Turrbal and Yuggera people. My name is Jessica Rudd, and I'm co-chair of the foundation. Outcome number one under the National Agreement on Closing the Gap is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people enjoy long and healthy lives. The target is to close the gap in life expectancy within a generation by 2031. Proud Ewan woman Natalie Bryant is a public policy researcher. She's currently a Sir Roland Wilson Pat Turner PhD scholar at the Australian National University, and she's investigating the absence of reforms to support Indigenous self-determination in the hospital system. Thank you so much for joining us on Listen, Learn, Respect, Natalie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up? Sure. So, like, as you've already pointed out, I'm a Yuan woman. So Yuan is the nation that runs from about La Perouse all the way down to south of Eden on the south coast of New South Wales, so all along the coastline. And I grew up in Nowra, which is pretty much smack bang in the middle of that area. Um, so I have an Aboriginal mother and a non-Indigenous father. And to be honest, I was raised as much by my mum as my uncles and, and my grandparents. Um, and really fortunate, I actually got to know and spent a long time with my great-grandmother. So she was 100 when she passed away just, um, just over 10 years ago now. And um, she was one of the oldest elders on the south coast of New South Wales. So... Um, yeah, that was pretty special for us. But yeah, so I grew up in Nowra and then eventually went to ANU for university, did my undergrad there, studied law, decided halfway through that I had absolutely no interest in being a lawyer and wanted to do, um, I actually wanted to do education policy, but somehow ended up in health policy. And that's pretty much where I've stayed now since um, I finished uni. Well, it sounds like it's been an amazing choice for you. So what inspired that keen interest in health policy from from the get-go? I sort of have always seen there's like to address the, you know, the disadvantage in Indigenous population. Like, you know, we do die substantially younger than non-Indigenous peoples, my grandmother notwithstanding that, my great-grandmother, sorry. So I've always worked in mainstream. I've never worked in Indigenous health prior to doing this research. Um, I've worked very much in mainstream roles doing, you know, drug and alcohol treatment grants. Um, most recently, I worked for the Independent Health and Aged Care Pricing Authority, which is about public hospital funding and pricing. So, um, and just in that, like, I've always sort of tried as best as possible to advocate and and to change, you know, perceptions of Indigenous peoples in those roles. So I've worked both across both state and Commonwealth as well. So which is sort of given me an opportunity to really understand our health system, um, I think, more than your average Commonwealth public servant does. And congratulations on being the Sir Roland Wilson Pat Turner Scholar at ANU. It's a huge achievement. Um, Pat Turner, who's a board colleague of ours at um, the National Apology Foundation, is at the forefront of a lot of community efforts to close the gap in health outcomes. Being a Sir Roland Wilson Pat Turner Scholar is an absolute honour, um, and privilege and it, it brings with it a lot of responsibility I think. Um, Annie Pat is amazing and, and has done some amazing work in this space. Can you sum up for us why Indigenous self-determination in the hospital system is critical? What we know is that like our hospitals are currently failing Indigenous people. Um, you know there are some 
pockets of success in the hospitals, but, you know, I think we only have to look back to see the coronial inquest into what happened at Domagee and see that our hospitals are failing, are failing my people. The coroner today concluded that both Doomagee Hospital and local health provider Gigi Healing did not give adequate care, describing the system as broken and suffering systemic failings, including racism. But we have this amazing example in the community-controlled sector of um, the Aboriginal Medical Services and Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations who are focused on social and cultural and emotional well-being of a community. They're not looking at people as a bunch of limbs and organs and diseases and illnesses. They're looking at a whole person, a whole family, a whole community. And they are good for Indigenous peoples. They have better outcomes. Um, there's evidence out there that shows that there are lower levels of hospitalizations and there is a lower suicide rate where you have community control of health services and we saw it in COVID you know um, in New South Wales the ACHOs and um, the Aboriginal community mobilized rapidly and that resulted in a really small number of COVID cases within New South Wales and no subsequent subsequent deaths up until December 2020 and that was local knowledges and solutions that were tailored to the local community you know the Aboriginal community controlled services are culturally appropriate they're comprehensive and they are governed by and directly accountable to local communities. So we need to try and emulate that in the hospital space. We have this example, you know, I think Megan Davis talks about in one of her articles, she talks about how um, the ACHOs are the embodiment of self-determination. Um, but if you go into a hospital in Australia and you're Indigenous, you are less likely to receive the treatments you need. Um, you're less likely to be put on a waiting list. Like if you have kidney disease, you're less likely to be put on a waiting list for a kidney transplant. So you'll be on dialysis for years. Once you're on the waiting list, you wait longer. Like we have evidence that supports this. And it's not just in kidney disease, it's in heart disease, it's in burns victims. And so we need to change the system. Like we can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different outcome. And so I guess tying that back to, you know, target one we have got no hope of closing the gap within a generation by 2031 if we keep going the way we're going. We need to look at the health system as mm. a whole and not at primary care over here and go, yeah, primary care is doing great, but you can't have a baby in a primary care health service. If you break your leg and, and you need surgery, you can't do that in a primary care service. There are things that can only be done in a hospital and we need to bring that self-determining mindset and those principles of self-determination and decision-making into the hospital space and change the way we run our hospitals because Western biomedical models don't work. They don't work for most people. Correct. Yes. But they especially don't work for Indigenous peoples. You've worked in systems uh, at state and federal level. What would you change immediately about how health policy works? Oh, for Indigenous people. If you had a magic wand, like I'm telling you right now, you've got a magic wand and you get to make the decisions. What would you change right now? I'd make Arnie Pat the Secretary of the Department of Health. Um, <laughs> and then every DEPSEC underneath her, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Um, no, I, look, I think there is, that's part of it. It is about representation at senior levels. Um, you know, we've never had an Indigenous Secretary of the Department of Health. Um mm. I don't think we've ever had an Indigenous Deputy Secretary. You know, if you look at state government, we've not had an Indigenous Secretary of the Ministry of Health in New South Wales. Um, 
Uh, so there is that. But bringing in perspectives at all levels, in all areas. So Indigenous health cannot be just managed by the First Nations Health Division or the Centre for Aboriginal Health. It can't be siloed into that. It has to be across every facet of government and every facet of decision-making. And I'm pale-skinned and I've, people have said some of the most ridiculous things around me because they don't, they either don't know or don't care. I've, you know, I've heard, oh, Aboriginal people, they don't wait in waiting, like in emergency departments, that's the reason they discharge or they don't wait for medical treatment or or this or that. And like, we are often blamed for the health problems. And there's that failure to recognise that it's it's far bigger and far more insidious. You know, institutional racism in this country is so embedded it's it's normal that's that is the life we live every day and that's become more and more obvious as I've done this research but it's also I think in the world we live in today it's become more and more obvious in the political environment that we're in you know people I I would wear my woven earrings and that would maybe sometimes make people check themselves before they said something this year it somehow emboldens people to say the most racist and disgusting things around me and I just find that that like that is my experience and it's not necessarily that people have poor intentions I think it's just so ingrained in how we work so I guess the other thing you know don't want to give away the solution that my PhD is going to hopefully deliver but we need to think about all (laughs) policy and think about how all policy meets the needs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people not just health policy but you know we've, we've got housing education um, you know, we have our first First Nations ambassador, like looking at how foreign policy impacts Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We tell a more powerful and more persuasive story of Australia when we tell our full story. We need to look at that at every facet and look at how we can ensure that we're doing that and not, it needs to be meaningful and authentic and it can't just be ticking a box to say, oh yes, we've consulted with an Aboriginal person or a Torres Strait Islander person but is it the right Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person? You know, what authority do they have? Do they have the cultural authority to be consulted or are they just the poor APS6 in the Department of Health who happens to also be Aboriginal? What exactly is your PhD investigating? So my research is really looking at how we can kind of emulate what's happened in the primary care space in the hospital setting. So I work in hospital funding and policy. So we determine the price that is paid by the Commonwealth for public hospital services. And that dictates the funding for a lot of services in um, states and territories. And I've always sort of found it really challenging to be in that space because I just don't think there's face validity to a lot of how we fund our hospitals in particular for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And so when I first started applying for the scholarship um, and I was looking at the Indigenous adjustment to the pricing model. Um, so there is an Indigenous adjustment, which is about 4%, which is basically um, paid on the price for a patient who identifies as an Indigenous person. And it's one of a suite of, of adjustments that can be applied to the pricing model that reflect, you know, the legitimate and unavoidable variation um, in the costs of um, delivering healthcare. And so that had always bothered me because I thought 4%, it's a drop in the bucket, but it also treats all Indigenous peoples as homogenous. Like we, and we're not all the same. We are a multicultural 
um, people. And that really kind of just irked me. And then it also just didn't, doesn't consider the unmet health need or the underservicing of the Indigenous population that we know that happens in our hospital systems. So I started out there and as I got deeper into it and I started, I realised that I didn't really want to just make a little difference. I wanted to make a big difference if I could and playing around the edges of the Indigenous adjustment was just not going to work. Um, and I was encouraged by my CEO and mentor to think bigger. And so I guess, so I did. I went back to the National Health Reform Agreement and, and had a look at um, how Indigenous peoples were reflected in that. How our plan is designed to make sure that Indigenous patients are given the care that they need along with all other Australians but and you know we're only referenced in there three times you know one is an unavoidable cost to the system um, one where a hackper must have regard to them in in terms of um, adjusting the price and then one which is a list of responsibilities um, for funding services outside of the hospital system and I was just like well that's frankly not good enough and then that led me back to the National Health and Hospitals Reform Commission and the recommendation to establish a national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Authority. It was proposed to operate the way Department of Veterans Affairs operates now in terms of purchasing hospital services for veterans. It was proposed that this do that for Indigenous peoples. But I think what bothered me more than anything else, it wasn't that the recommendation itself was rejected. It was the fact it was the only one that was rejected of 123. Everything else was accepted or noted. And if you think about the time, this was in 2010, and at the time, so we had in 2007, your dad, Kevin Rudd, was elected. 2008, first time ever a welcome to country was, was done at Parliament. The second day of Parliament, the National Apology to the Stolen Generations. And a year later, um, we had the Labor government endorse the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. So you have all of that happening on one hand, and then on the other hand, you had this recommendation and it was rejected and I just couldn't let go of that. And so that's how I've ended up researching what I'm researching and looking at why we have this amazing self-determining community controlled primary healthcare system, but in a hospital system, we have very little um, Indigenous perspectives taken into account and how we can, can we learn from one and bring it into the other. I want to look at whether this recommendation was any any good, I guess. Um, was it the right recommendation? Um, if it was, then why was it not supported? If it wasn't, well, what was proposed instead of this? Because it it sort of feels a bit like it could have been a game changer, but it may not have been. So who do you talk to about that when you're researching it? Like what kinds of people are you talking to? So I'm sort of midway through my interviews um, at the moment. And so interviewing senior bureaucrats of the time, like people from within the system, Indigenous leaders, so um, people who played significant roles in NACHO or in um, the National Indigenous Health Equity Council, uh, people who worked in the, in the community-controlled health sector at a state level, um, also looking at some of the politicians that were involved in these decisions um, and health policy experts and members of the commission itself. So sort of hoping to interview about 30 people a lot, like across those four spectrums. You must have a sense in your innermost thoughts of what was going on at the time. Can you test against that hypothesis? Is that what you're doing or are you kind of going really open-mindedly into the process? Well, look, I'm trying to be open-minded, but, you know, I think as you can imagine, we do have our gut feelings. And I do think it is... I think it was such a radical proposal and at the time it 
was maybe too radical for where we were at in the world. Um, I also would it work now? Maybe, but it would have to come from Indigenous people. It would have to be a recommendation. It would have to be a body that was supported and wanted by Indigenous people. And and I think that's probably the other reason why it wasn't supported at the time is that, um, you know, the National Health and Hospitals Reform Commission had no Indigenous members. Um, there were They sought discussion papers from a variety of health policy experts none of whom were Indigenous. And so that there was an absence of Indigenous voices in the process and therefore there was sort of no Indigenous buy-in to it. Um, and it's it's unclear whether, you know, how what level of consultation was done, but certainly there was nobody to advocate for it. And so it kind of, when I talk to people now and I say, oh, do you know about this body that was proposed? Oh, no, I didn't really, I don't, I don't really recall it. It was, it almost petered out and it was never spoken of again. So um, until I came and started talking about it constantly over the last two years. <laughs> it's good. I'm glad you are. So you've worked in health reform and health policy for more than 10 years um, at Commonwealth and state level. What has that been like as a First Nations woman? You've spoken to entrenched racism that you experience around you every day uh, and that being deeply embedded and ingrained into an Australian way of thinking. Can you give me some of that from a work perspective? Would you be comfortable sharing that with me? Look, I've, I've always worked predominantly in mainstream areas. Um, the only time I worked in an Indigenous space was back in 2006, 2007. And I was very grateful that I left a week after. I was leaving already, but I probably would have left regardless a week after the intervention was announced, um, which was a really hard, it was very hard to be working in the Department of Health when that was the policy of the day. Good evening. John Howard is sending special police squads to sweep through Aboriginal communities and arrest parents who abuse their children. I've always worked in really supportive places. I'm often the only Aboriginal person, so become a bit of the Indigenous clearinghouse. Um, but, you know, where I work currently, there are three of us, which is great. Um, you know, we're still by far the, the minority, but three out of about 80 is not bad in a mainstream area and so we work from within to try and chip away at some of those um you know ingrained misunderstandings of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and looking at you know why don't we have a board member who's Indigenous you know why don't we really have Indigenous representation on any of our committees um, you know, we've been working very hard in IHACPA over many years to embed cultural safety. Um, and I think we've done that quite well under the guidance of our of our CEOs and that continues under our new CEO. And I think with that, you're just sort of slowly changing people's minds a little bit, but it is hard. Like sometimes you just kind of want to bury your head in the sand a little bit. And um, that's kind of how I felt this year, to be honest. I have spoken about Indigenous Voice to Parliament more than I would ever like to. Mm. Um, I'm often the only Aboriginal person people know, so everybody wants to ask your opinion. Yeah. And it's exhausting and it's traumatic mm. and it's really draining. And so that's probably my experience over the past 10 years. At times it's been really positive and other times, like, you know, when somebody makes a comment about 
you know, Aboriginal people leaving the emergency department because they just, they couldn't be bothered to wait. And you just kind of want to bang your head up against a wall and be like, did you ever think that the emergency department might be the problem and not the Aboriginal person? And trying to, you know, show people the data and the evidence to say, actually, here's the problem, you know, not the Aboriginal person who's left. So look, just chipping away at it over the past 10 years and, you know, hopefully making a much bigger dent in it over the course of my PhD and and what will come from that. Oh, yeah, it'll make a splash. The National Agreement on Closing the Gap has been built around four priority reforms that have been directly informed by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Priority Reform 3 is about transforming government organisations. What do our government organisations need to do to be more effective in responding directly to the needs of First Nations peoples and communities? I think we need to find a language to talk about the problem the problem of, you know, racism and the effects of colonisation, which are ongoing. We don't have that language in Australia. We don't talk about race, really. It's a discussion that's obviously been had this year, but we don't have a really good way of talking about it. And and it's not about interpersonal racism. It's not about individuals or calling out, like, that sort of type of direct interpersonal racism it's about understanding that our systems have been designed in a way which does not represent all people and especially doesn't represent um, indigenous peoples I can't help but think back to one of the quotes that I heavily lean in lean into and into my PhD is um, Chelsea Watergo and speaking at the Lowitcher Institute International Health and Wellbeing Conference in 2009, uh, Chelsea talked about the need to consider how institution structures, systems and processes operate to undermine Indigenous health and wellbeing. And that's what we need to, that's what we need to lean into with Priority Reform 3. We need to talk about what the problem is. We need to have an honest, open dialogue. And once we can have that honest, open dialogue, then we can start to consider what the solutions are. And the solutions, you know, in my mind, are more Aboriginal representation across the board, actually listening to Indigenous academics and Indigenous knowledge holders, and not just Indigenous academics that have Western qualifications, but our traditional knowledge holders whose knowledges have been largely disrespected and and ignored, I guess, for a long time. We need to listen to those people. We need to ensure that we take all of that into consideration and then we, like, come up with solutions that, are meaningful and authentic and engage appropriately with the aspirations and the needs of Indigenous peoples. You know, we need to think outside the box as well with this. We can't just, it's not just about having a RAP. A Reconciliation Action Plan, or RAP, provides a strategic framework to drive an organisation's contribution to the reconciliation movement. Like it's about enacting anti-racist policy. It's about, you know, engaging deeply and meaningfully for the long term and it's not a quick fix like this is not going to be something that happens in an election cycle or overnight like this is a long-term problem that we and it needs to be continuously maintained you're not just going to flick a switch and we're going to suddenly become anti-racist it's something that we then are going to have to work to maintain over the years and you know hopefully my PhD can go some way to to providing a solution that will enable us to build an evidence base to demonstrate where our policies are, are failing Indigenous peoples and how we can do better. And I think we also need to learn from 
international examples. You know, Canada have just implemented um, legislation to they're going to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples domestically. You know, we've had, we endorsed UNDRIP in 2008, 2009, and we haven't done anything about it. So we need to sort of do that. In 2025, the parties to the Closing the Gap Agreement are going to meet and consider progress on Priority Reform 3. Uh, How do you reckon they're going to go? Are they on track? There's still a bunch of work to do. What do you want to see change? I've not really seen any major discussions about how this one um, is going to play out. I was at the Lowitcher Conference this year um, up in Cairns and there was a lot of discussions about Priority Reform 4, which was about data governance, but very little discussion around Priority Reform 3. So I don't think the conversation in 2025 is going to be great unless we get a move on. Um, I think we do have a really long way to go. I, As I said, I just don't think we have the language to discuss this properly. Like people get bogged down in the idea that calling out institutional racism is calling individuals racist or calling for someone's, mentioning someone's privilege, you know, or white privilege is attacking white people. But that's not what it, what calling out institutional racism is. It's about looking at how the structure's and systems and processes have been undermining Indigenous people. It's, And if we can make this work for Indigenous people, we can make it work better for a raft of other community groups. You know, if we can make our health system safe for Indigenous people, we can make it safe for migrants, for refugees, for um, members of the LGBTQI plus community. Like, we can do better across the board. I'm focused on this area because that is you know, my positionality, like I am an Aboriginal woman. I worry about my daughter. I have a five-year-old. I worry about her, you know, identifying as an Aboriginal person on a form in hospital and not getting the treatment she needs. And, you know, that is terrifying as a mother. I don't want that to be my concern. So that's why I'm focused on Indigenous people, but we can do better for a raft of other people as well. As a policy specialist, you would have really different answers to um, GPs or epidemiologists. But uh, so how do you think the closing the gap outcome of long and healthy lives can be achieved? I can tell you what I don't think it will be. It's not going to be cultural awareness training or Aboriginal artwork in hospitals. You know, while artwork is pretty and cultural awareness training is really important, it won't change the fundamental issues with our system. It is Priority Reform 3. Like I think Priority Reform 3 is an absolute game changer. If we can change the conversation, we can identify and talk about the system as being the problem and not the Aboriginal people that are trying to use this system, then we can start to look at that closing the gap target one and start to address that discrepancy in life expectancy we need to think outside the box when it comes to health service delivery and funding. Uh, we need to support the ACHOs to do the work that they're doing. They do an amazing job. We need more support for preventative care and whole of community care rather than looking at people as a series of illnesses and body parts. And we need to focus on wellness at an individual, a family and a community level. And as I said, we need to learn from international experience. Like, you know, I'm looking at this case study of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Authority in British Columbia in Canada, they actually established one back in 2011. They established the First, Na- First Nations Health Authority. And New Zealand just established the Maori Health Authority last year. So, 
you know, we need to look at what those organisations have done, whether there's the capacity for us to, you know, use that as a blueprint. But we also need to look at can we expand the role of Nacho? Like did Nacho have us have a place in the hospital setting or are we asking too much of of an organisation that was embedded in the primary care system? Primary reform three is where I'm putting all my chips Um and hopefully we can address that. And then I think if we can transform government agencies, the rest of it kind of becomes easy, right? Like this is the wicked problem. And then the rest of the problems, if we can address the one wicked problem, the rest of them won't look so hard. Well, Natalie Bryant, I'm very glad you're not another lawyer. Um, I'm very glad you didn't stick it out in that legal degree at, uh, at ANU. I'm glad you switched tracks into health policy. I cannot wait to see the impact of your PhD. And I thank you very much for all of the research you're doing, for challenging the norms and for finding better solutions. And I thank you for joining us here on Listen, Learn, Respect. Thank you. You can follow Listen, Learn, Respect in your favourite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. On behalf of the National Apology Foundation, thanks for joining us.